Joe Biden's Afghanistan disaster is worse than Vietnam. And we're going to get to why in just a moment. But first, we need to unpack exactly uh, how we got here. So Biden gave a speech, an Afghanistan speech yesterday. He took time out from his vacation at Camp David to come to the White House, walked up to the podium wearing a freaking mask, and then proceeded to talk as if he was some strong man in the world. It was a disgrace. It was an embarrassment to our country. It was an absolute disaster. And beyond that, beyond simply the policy being idiotic, the the speech was full of falsehoods. Falsehoods and ignorance, actually, were the two defining words that I would categorize uh, or I would use to describe his speech. And by the way, working in politics and working in the media specifically, I feel like I've gotten desensitized to a lot of different types of situations because we cover a lot of bad news all the time. We talk about threats to our country. We talk about tragedies. We talk about poisonous ideologies. We talk about a lot of heavy stuff, um, both in our country and around the world. And because I've been doing this for years and years, I feel like I have gotten just slightly desensitized to it, for better or for worse. Maybe it's because we talk about it a lot. Maybe it's because um, maybe it's because it's just so awful to see it's hard to process that that amount of evil is in our country or in the world. But what's happening in Afghanistan is one of those things that really penetrates all of my armor and really gets me. Watching some of these videos, I don't know about you, but it feels to me like a punch in the gut. There was a video circulating today of women in Afghanistan. They were standing by the side of the road as Taliban passed in their little Toyotas, um, all dressed up for war. And these women had signs. They were holding up little pieces of printer paper with marker written on them, and they were standing up for their social and political rights. And I thought to myself, as I saw this video, I thought, we talk about, we use the word hero in our society very cavalierly. In fact, we've almost obliterated the entire meaning of that word by saying that everyone working in healthcare is a healthcare hero. No. These women who are actually looking at death in the face. They are standing on the side of the road with their faces uncovered, which is enough to justify being raped and killed at the hands of the Taliban. They are about to be subjugated under Sharia law after tasting freedom for just a very short time. And they're speaking out. They're putting themselves in even more danger than they already are just by existing. They're putting themselves in even more danger so that the world understands the situation in Afghanistan, so that these photos and these videos circulate, so that we understand here in the United States what our president, Joe Biden, has done to these women. And that's one of the things that no matter how long you work in politics, no matter what kind of horrible stories that I comment on, no matter what, no matter what tragedy we're analyzing, my armor just falls off. Like I said, it's a punch in the gut. And Joe Biden in his speech says he stands by everything that he's done. He stands by his decision to leave Afghanistan the way that he did. He stands by his decision to leave the people of Afghanistan who have helped the United States, interpreters and others who have risked their lives by helping the Afghan government in the United States. He stands by his decision to leave them just like this. He stands by his decision to leave the women and children. So I want to talk just a second about some of the absolute lies, the falsehoods that Joe Biden said in his speech yesterday, that he peddled in his speech yesterday. And this first one is the biggest one, because this is the justification that Biden uses for pulling out of Afghanistan the way that he is. Biden says that there is no national interest, no national security interest for the United States for us to be in Afghanistan anymore. And this, I think, is the most egregious falsehood for the following reasons. I mean, remember first why we were in Afghanistan. We were in Afghanistan because the Taliban harbored al-Qaeda, 
who attacked the United States on U.S. soil on September 11th, 2001, killing over 3,000 people in the most brutal terror attack in modern history. So we went into Afghanistan. We eventually got, we eventually got Osama bin Laden, the mastermind, um, the head of al-Qaeda. We decapitated the Taliban and removed them from power because, not because they were simply jihadists, but because they had harbored a security threat. They had allowed al-Qaeda to fester in their nation, knowing that al-Qaeda was plotting an attack on the United States. So to say that it's not in our national security interest to be in Afghanistan is false. Now, I understand some people will say, well, sure, that was justification for when we were there, but we could have decapitated them in one year or two years. Why are we still here 20 years later? Well, I'll tell you why. Because once you take out a regime the way that we took out the Taliban, it creates a power vacuum. And one of several things can happen. China could take over because Afghanistan is a, a geopolitically advantageous position. Russia could take over in Afghanistan, which they've tried to do before. They've done before. These are our adversaries. We don't want them to be in charge of Afghanistan. We don't want them, China and Russia, to harbor terrorists that might hurt us. Furthermore, if the United States pulls out of Afghanistan, we see this before our eyes, this is not hypothetical, then the Taliban is going to take charge again. And what is the Taliban going to do? Well, they're going to give harbor, give safe passage to Al-Qaeda again. Because yes, we kneecapped Al-Qaeda, but we didn't extinguish the poisonous ideology of radical Islam. Al-Qaeda still exists. In fact, according to a UN report, Al-Qaeda currently has presence in 10 to 15 provinces in Afghanistan, as we speak. How does that work? They're protected by the Taliban already. So Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan could be a threat to the United States because remember, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan wants revenge for the killing of Osama bin Laden, their leader. Who killed Osama bin Laden? The United States did. So the idea that there's no national security interest, current national security interest for the United States to be in Afghanistan is ridiculous. Yet Joe Biden was peddling it. Biden also used as justification the way that he pulled out of Afghanistan because there is, by the way, some consensus on either side of the aisle or on both sides of the aisle, I should say, that we've been in Afghanistan the way that we are long enough. Now, some people just think that we should leave altogether, that 20 years and you know, trillions of dollars is enough. Other people think, like me, that we should win decisively first and then leave a residual presence just for peacekeeping and mostly pull out of Afghanistan. But Biden says that, or he excuses the way that he left like this because he says the Afghans won't fight. He blames the Afghan army, which surrendered and ran away. Now, first of all, this is partly true. Nobody that I know, nobody that should be taken seriously claims that the Afghan army are the most courageous military force on earth. They're clearly not. That's just objective truth. However, to act like or perpetuate a narrative that says that the Afghan army did not fight, was not willing to fight, wouldn't sacrifice, that is simply false. In fact, the Afghan army suffered 50,000 casualties since 2014. How? Pushing back on Taliban offenses across the country. 50,000 casualties they suffered. But they felt that they could fight against these Taliban offenses because they had U.S. air support and they had U.S. intelligence support. Well, Biden told them recently, no more U.S. air support and no more intel support. So when the United States has trained an army like the Afghan army to rely on the United States in order to fight, and then the United States rips the rug out from under them by saying, actually, we're not going to support you anymore. What do you expect from this army? You trained them to be dependent on you. So what do you have 
as a result, you have demoralized Afghans who, yes, the army collapsed. But for Biden to say that they simply had no will to fight, that's a hideous lie. 50,000 of them have died since 2014. Now, Biden addressed the widespread outrage too about what I spoke about at the beginning of the show when uh, about the women and children in Afghanistan and their rights being violated, their bodies most likely being violated, their lives perhaps being violated, probably being violated, depending on um, whether they violated the Taliban's version of Sharia law. But Biden said in his speech that he supports basic rights for women and girls. And I just don't think a politician can get more disgusting than this. Because regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, you know what is going to happen to the women in Afghanistan. There's a female mayor in Afghanistan right now that says there's no escape for her. There's no way out. She is sitting there waiting for the Taliban to kill her. We can't even wrap our heads around something like that here in the United States because we are so privileged. We are so lucky. We are so fortunate. We are so blessed to have the freedom that we have that we fight about silly things. We get angry about very, very shallow political issues when this female mayor is waiting for the Taliban to kill her. There was a journalist on Twitter yesterday who said that he has an 11-month-old daughter. And because he um, coordinated, because he helped the U.S. forces when they were there, he's scared for his daughter because the Taliban has lists of people who worked with the Americans. They, these lists were obtained because the Taliban either paid people or coerced people to rat on their neighbors, their family, their friends. And what the Taliban does in revenge to retaliate against individuals who help the U.S. is they harm the family members of those who worked with the Americans. Because I think most of us would rather die ourselves than see our family members uh, tortured and harmed and possibly killed. I know that I would. So this 11-month baby girl, four or five months older than my daughter, in harm's way, the Taliban might hurt her because this journalist dared to report because he worked with the U.S. forces. And yet Biden claims that he supports basic rights for women and girls? Absolutely despicable. The worst kind of politics. Biden also claimed that he was evacuating. The United States is evacuating everybody who helped. And I certainly hope and pray that this is the case, but this is what I will say. It's too late. Too little, too late to evacuate. Because even if the United States military under under the command, of course, of the commander-in-chief, Joe Biden, even if they have the intent now to evacuate everyone, it's going to take too long. People will die in the interim. Because the Biden administration didn't do this in the lead-up to pulling the troops out, people will die in the interim. So don't pretend, Mr. President, that evacuating everybody is simply a done deal. It's not even close to a done deal. People are going to die in the interim. So then th those are the outright falsehoods that Biden was peddling in his speech that the world was watching last night. But then there's just the stupidity that Biden was peddling too. Biden claimed that we can fight terror. We, the United States, can fight terrorism and pockets of terrorism around the world without a standing force in the country. Okay, let's accept his premise for one second and play this game. What is his standard? What is your standard, Mr. President, then, for getting involved with fighting terror in these pockets without a standing force? Is the Taliban taking over the Afghanistan, a terror organization taking over the government, the duly elected government of a country? Is that not enough for you that you'll have the United States get involved? No, you continue to pull troops out. You continue to abandon our allies, those who have worked with us and innocent civilians. So that's a bunch of baloney right there, that we can fight terror without a standing force but he has no standard for what that even means. His standard clearly is, if I don't want to be there, I don't care what happens to those we leave behind. 
Biden also pretended to be the tough guy, which is absurd given his feeble state. He said, we will defend our people with devastating force if necessary. But who's going to believe this? I don't even believe it. And I'm American. He is, Biden has literally left our allies to their graveyard. The idea, by the way, of not having a military presence in a country sim simply for the sake of saying we have no military presence there, that is stupid. And I'll tell you why. Look at Iraq. And I'm using Iraq because Biden was intricately involved in what happened in Iraq. We will, we will have to go back to Afghanistan if we pull out the way that Biden is pulling out and dead bodies will pave our road back. Biden knows this. In fact, he knows this better than anyone because it was his fault that that's what happened in Iraq because he did the same thing in Iraq that he's doing in Afghanistan. And yet, notwithstanding everything that we just talked about, all the facts on the ground, Biden says he stands by his decision to pull out as we watch Afghans wait for their death. And by the way, when we're talking about a standing force in the country, let's be very clear about what we mean. There was a um, bipartisan Afghanistan study group in Congress, that means Republicans and Democrats, who did a study on how many American troops would need to be stationed there as peacekeeping forces in order to prevent the Taliban from taking over, in order to prevent al-Qaeda from... Um, from regaining their grip in this region, using this to plot and plan terror attacks against the United States. And guess how many forces we would need in Afghanistan to prevent this from happening? 4,500. 4,500. We've not had a combat-related casualty in Afghanistan since early last year. Every casualty is a tragedy. Don't mistake what I'm saying. But 4,500 forces in Afghanistan is all we would need to prevent this from happening, yet Biden can't even do that. Think about how many standing forces we have around the world. Italy, Germany, Japan, Korea, all of these different places, we have much, much, much larger standing forces. And yet 4,500 is all we would need in Afghanistan and Biden can't muster, muster the courage to do that because he would rather have what he thinks is a PR win at home. So, that's obviously ridiculous. Biden also mentioned Vietnam because of the images that we all saw of helicopters evacuating out of Kabul. And it, it looked like Vietnam, right? It, you, can't, you can't ignore the comparison. So let's talk even more in depth about that. Yes, let's talk about that. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. I think it's accurate to say that Afghanistan is under Biden, Biden's Afghanistan, is worse than what happened in Vietnam. And I'll tell you why in just a second. But first, I want to talk about Moink Box. If you could see and taste this bacon from moinkbox.com, then you would order it right now. But for now, let me tell you, it is delicious. I'm vegan. You know that. I know that. So I asked my husband, who's basically Ron Swanson, I asked him, because he's not a vegan, for an endorsement. And this is what he said. Meat, period. That's is his endorsement of this. You can't get more Ron Swanson than that. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. We like that. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find in prepackaged uh, meat in the meat aisle. So sign up at moinkbox.com slash Liz to get a year of bacon for free and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. 
and cancel anytime. They'll guarantee that you say, oink, oink, I'm just so happy I got moinked. So join the moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash Liz right now. And listeners to this show get free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste. But for a limited time, spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash Liz. That's moinkbox.com slash Liz. You'll be glad you did. So it's hard to deny that the images and video coming out of Kabul are looking worse than Saigon. We all saw the video yesterday of the Air Force aircraft where Afghan people were hanging on the bottom, dropped off to their death because they were so desperate to escape uh, to escape Afghanistan, to escape Kabul before the Taliban came in and took over. Um, so let's just be very clear here. The loss of Afghanistan, the loss of Kabul, and the loss of life, and the imminent loss of life, is a political choice. This is not the loss of a war where we couldn't help it. This is not the United States not being able to dictate the terms of a surrender or the terms of a deal to end the war. This is a political choice being made by Joe Biden. And this is a this is a very interesting philosophical path to go down, I think, because no one calls for an end to Korea. And Korea is essentially an endless war, right? So that's one of the lines that we've heard from people on both sides of the aisle, actually, about Afghanistan. It's time, you know, after, after 20 years and trillions of dollars, it's time to end this endless war in Afghanistan. Stop endless wars. Well, nobody really calls for an end to the war in Korea. And that truly is an endless war because there never actually was an end to it. So why is that? Why is it that we don't call for an end to Korea, that we don't mind that we have a residual force there, but we're so against it in Afghanistan? Well, the answer lies a little bit in, uh, forgive my nerdiness here, but in the nitty gritty of history. Joe Biden essentially has a choice whether he wants Afghanistan to be like Korea or like Vietnam. So Korea and Vietnam had many similarities, but several stark differences. And the stark differences came down to the political choices made by the politicians in charge of the war. So Korea, for example, there were 35,000 Americans who died in Korea. The war lasted approximately three years and it didn't end. Technically, technically, the Korean War is still going on. It came to a kind of end because there was an armistice. That's that's means that it's not totally over, but essentially the conflict has ended. So Vietnam, 55,000 Americans died. A trillion dollars were spent on this war. It's uh, adjusted for inflation, I believe. 10 years it lasted, and it ended in the United States in defeat for the United States. But the interesting part of this, even though these, these wars ended into very different ways, they started out with very similar goals. The goal of both the Korean War and the Vietnam War were defense of freedom in Asia, right? The United States was essentially going to stop the spread of communism in that region. We had no imperial advantages, if you will. This was not something that we, um, that our goal was to conquer. We had no resources that we wanted to either take or protect. Um, we just wanted to stop the spread of communism. And Korea and Vietnam, of course, even from a geographic standpoint, the way that the communists were trying to take over the entire countries was even similar. The communists came from the North. They tried to take over the South. And yet, very different outcomes. So why did they have very different outcomes? Why did they have very different outcomes? Well, here's why. So Korea was not reunified in the end, right? There's North Korea and there's South Korea today. It's not one Korea, which was the original goal and it would have been ideal. But South Korea after the war, after 35,000 American troops died in the Korean War, South Korea became a economic powerhouse. They're a free people, they're a prosperous people, and millions and millions of lives in South Korea were saved from the tyranny of North Korean communism and dictatorship. Imagine if Kim Jong-un was in charge of not just North Korea, but South Korea. So the end of the Korean War was, no, North Korea is still a communist closed nation, and that's unfortunate. 
it wasn't reunified. However, half of the Korean peninsula was saved and they became a free people, a prosperous people, and people were saved from probably death, certainly starvation. Then we have Vietnam. Now, Vietnam, Lyndon B. Johnson gave plenty of money and plenty of troops uh, to this war, yet, like Afghanistan, and this is true not just of Biden, this is true of multiple administrations now, there was never a decisive victory that was sought. We never said our goal in Afghanistan is to win, is to defeat our enemy as quickly and as effectively as possible with our military war machine which of course should have been the, uh, the objective in both Vietnam and in Afghanistan. So after Nixon's Watergate scandal, remember, Vietnam War, 10 years, spent multiple administrations, the North Vietnamese, the communists, knew, similar to what's happening in Afghanistan, that there was no air support, no material support from the United States to the South Vietnamese. So of course, the communists didn't stop. They were, they were relentless in their pursuit of taking over Vietnam. In addition to that, the Soviets and China gave the North Vietnamese support, so the North Vietnamese took over the whole country. Now imagine if the political decisions in the United States had been different. In the years 1973 and 1974, imagine if the United States had actually committed to protecting the South Vietnamese. What would have happened? It would have, it could have, it should have ended up like Korea where at the very least, the South Vietnamese were protected from communism from the North Vietnamese, like in Korea, where the South Koreans were protected from the North Koreans. If that had happened, we wouldn't have seen the boat refugees. We wouldn't have seen the gulags. We wouldn't have seen the concentration camps. We wouldn't have seen the re-education. We wouldn't have seen communism take over Vietnam. There are some who even say that had we been able to prevent the South Vietnamese from being overtaken by the North Vietnamese, it would have prevented the Cambodian genocide because it would have stopped the spread of communism in the entire region. And that could have saved 2 million lives because 2 million people were killed in the Cambodian genocide. Now, this is basic American history. You, you should be learning this in high school. Biden, Joe Biden is certainly older than the Hills. He, he should know this. He should know better. This kind of history, if you haven't learned it in high school, we must make sure that the next generation in our country is taught, that they're taught these facts, these historical facts in school. Otherwise, what will happen? We will have an ignorant citizenry and we will repeat historical mistakes, historical tragedies even, like what happened in Vietnam, like what Biden is doing in Afghanistan. It's just a repeat of history. That's what's happening before our eyes. Biden's Afghanistan is going to be worse than Vietnam for the same reason that the U.S. lost in Vietnam, because political choices made by politicians who didn't have the will to win. And look what happened in our world as a result of these different political choices. When you compare what happened in Korea and you pair, compare what happened in Vietnam, it is, it's beyond stark. It's shocking that any United States politician, that any president of the United States like Joe Biden would make such an idiotic, dangerous global choice. People are going to die because of what Joe Biden is doing. So what can we do in the face of Democrats holding the House, Senate, and the White House? Because that's the problem right now. Any policy that the Republicans don't like or any policy that the Democrats do like, essentially the Democrats get their way because Nancy Pelosi and her ilk control the House, Chuck Schumer and his ilk control the Senate, 
And the White House, of course, is controlled by, well, probably Kamala Harris and Jill Biden, but, you know, ostensibly Joe Biden. So what can we do, the American people, what can we do in the face of um, having lost that trifecta? Well, there's a very interesting philosophy that's being discussed right now uh, among many Republicans, and that is a state-level bulwark. What I mean by state-level bulwark is not just Republican legislatures. That's important. Not just Republican governors. That's also very important. Not just school board members. Super, super important. What I'm talking about is Republican state-level attorneys general. This perhaps is the secret weapon of the right that the right is beginning to use. We ought to be using it even more But if Republicans focus on the state attorneys general across the country, then you actually have a chance. Republicans have a chance to stop the White House, to stop Congress, stop the House, to stop the Senate from doing what they're doing. And this is what I mean. There's a group of Republican attorneys general, it's the Republican Attorneys General Association, aptly named here, uh, whose goal it is to challenge the White House every time that they issue a policy that is unconstitutional. Because if Congress isn't going to challenge it, if the Supreme Court's too cowardly to rule on anything significant, then the states are going to have to be the bulwark. So they've done some really good stuff on several issues. So let me give an example. Climate and energy, right? Biden came into office and immediately uh, ended, wanted to terminate the Keystone Pipeline. He immediately wanted to stop oil and gas leases on federal land. He uh, required federal, federal agencies to calculate the social cost of greenhouse gas pollution, all this nutty Green New Deal type environmentalist stuff that the very leftist side of the party was pressuring him to do. Now, this costs us, the American people, it costs us not only financially, it costs us our freedom, it costs us money, and there seems no way to stop it when Democrats hold the House and the Senate. However, Republican attorneys general challenged the Keystone Pipeline, the termination of that. They challenged the suspension of oil and gas leases on federal land. And they challenged this social cost, this calculation of the social cost of greenhouse gas pollution. And in large part, they won. And when they won, we win. When we win, Biden loses. So even if we don't have control of the White House, the House and the Senate, there are that uh, we have a very powerful, very, very powerful tool we can use to stop them. This is true too for Second Amendment rights. Um, this, the Republican Attorneys General Association has also played a large part in um, attempting to stop the ATF, Biden's ATF nominee, David Chipman, this radical anti-Second Amendment um, dude who believes in terminating our rights to keep and bear arms, especially when it comes to AR-15. He's a gun control fanatic, not someone who um, appreciates our constitutional right um, to keep firearms for ourselves. The Republican attorneys general are also advocates for um, the New York Second Amendment case that's going to come before the Supreme Court, which is really important because the Supreme Court doesn't like to rule on Second Amendment cases. So having the power of Republican attorneys general on all these issues, whether it's climate, whether it's Second Amendment, whether it's life, for example. In Mississippi, we know there's a 15-week abortion ban that the Supreme Court is going to come before the Supreme Court. And Republican attorneys general are the ones who are actually helping litigate this. They are making this some something serious. They're bringing it to the Supreme Court level. They are helping argue it so that we have the best chance of winning, so that we have the best chance of protecting life from the moment of conception without Roe v. Wade, the unconstitutional ruling Um, that essentially codifies abortion in our nation so that that's not um, held higher than the Constitution of the United States. So life issues, climate, the Second Amendment. Republican attorneys general also um, stopped Biden when Congress passed Biden's American Rescue Plan, you know, the almost $2 trillion um, package. The Biden administration 
had a provision in this bill that would prohibit states from using COVID relief money to cut taxes in their states. Well, the attorney general of the state of Ohio, for example, sued against the Biden administration and won. So all of these different policies, they may seem minute, but they're actually not. They impact our lives. They impact our states. They impact our liberty in a great way. Same with immigration. Biden suspended deportations when he took office and Republican attorneys general sued that policy. They won. Um, the attorney general of the state of Arizona sued Biden over his decision to halt construction of the border wall. The, the reason I'm giving this, this broad this broad view of the power of Republican attorneys general is because we have to remember how important down-ballot races are. It's not just who's debating on TV. It's not just who's at the top of that ballot. I mean, we see school board members across the country. We see what they're like, and we see parents stepping up. We see the power of parents who serve on the school board, and unfortunately, the power of the lackeys of the teachers' unions serving on school board. We see the power of judges, not just at the Supreme Court level, but at all levels of the judiciary. We see the power of district attorneys. That's why George Soros and his ilk are going after district attorneys in our nation, trying, and of course, opposite of what we advocate for, George Soros and his uh, his followers, his progressive lackeys, they want essentially an anti-prosecution philosophy to be in the district attorney's office. That's not what a, a nation of law and order needs in the district attorneys. And so we see school board members, judges, district attorneys, and now we see the power of attorneys general. So the point here is that state level action from school board all the way up to attorney general will and can prevent the federal government from overreaching. So do not lose hope when we have no power in the House, when we have no power in the Senate, when we have no advocate for the Constitution in the White House. There are things we can do, not just at the local level, but using the power of the states to stop the federal government, and we ought to do it. So believe it or not, Fauci might not be the most influential man behind COVID-19 policies in our nation. He might not be the puppet master behind the lockdowns, but I'm going to tell you who is in just a second. But first, I want to talk to you about Nutrafol. Now, let's be very honest here. Many of those who, many of you who watch my show uh, might be balding men. And if you are a man and you are bald, I'm talking to you right now. Yes, indeed, you. I am talking to you. Now, the reason you might never have used or might be hesitant to use any kind of hair growth product uh, is because hair growth products are known to stifle your sex drive and ain't nobody got time for that. Nobody wants that. Well, Nutrafol does the opposite. Nutrafol uh, promotes whole body wellness in addition to hair growth and it does not impede your sex drive. So you can grow thicker, healthier hair. It's clinically proven to do so. And you can support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code Liz to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Liz. You and your hair deserve it. Go for it. If you've thought about it, just do it. Okay, so step aside Fauci. I wish that were a literal thing and not just a rhetorical introduction here. But step aside, Fauci, Fauci might not actually be the most influential individual in our country behind COVID-19 policy. I think we all thought he was. He seemed, first he was dictating uh, COVID policy during the Trump administration. He's certainly been dictating COVID policy in the Biden administration. Anything that Fauci says on TV, it seems like the Biden administration adopts just a couple days or a couple weeks later. But Jordan Schachtel over at the Dossier Substack newsletter, highly recommend, by the way, had a very interesting and factual breakdown 
of someone who is perhaps more powerful than Fauci. And the person I'm talking about is Bill Gates. So let me explain. And I will explain by reading, a briefly reading part of Jordan's report. He said, Jordan writes, the common thread seen in the United States is the delegation of state policy to prediction modeling forecasts from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, a Washington state-based institution that is wholly controlled and funded to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In March and early April, politicians were informed, this is last year, of course, by the modeling experts at Gates-funded IHME that their hospitals were about to be completely overrun by coronavirus patients. Modelers from IHME claimed this massive surge would cause hospitals to run out of life-saving equipment in a matter of days, not weeks or months. Time was of the essence, and now was the time for rapid decision-making, the modelers claimed. Again, the modelers that were funded by Bill Gates. On two separate April 1st and April 2nd press conferences, Cuomo, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, now let me back up for a second here. So this isn't just Gates funding the model. There are politicians at almost every level of our government, whether it's governors, whether it's the federal government COVID response team, who are admitting that they're basing their policy prescriptions on the IHME model. And this is an example. On two separate occasions, Schachtel writes, April 1st and April 2nd, Cuomo made clear that his policy decisions in the state of New York were based off the IHME model. How chilling is that? We all know what Cuomo's policy decisions were putting COVID-positive nursing home residents back in nursing homes, which caused them to die and others to die, caused the transmission of the virus, lying about it, locking people down in their homes, which caused, by the way, most of the new infections in early summer, late spring last year, were because families were giving it to each other because they were locked down because of Cuomo. And Cuomo said that his policy decisions were based off of the IHME model. Shaktel writes, There's a group that is funded by the Gates Foundation. Oh, this is Cuomo again on April 1st. Thank you very much, Bill Gates, Cuomo said. Cuomo knew that his policies prescriptions were based on this model, which was funded by Bill Gates. So there's there's no denying this correlation. There's no saying, well, who knows what kind of nonprofit or what kind of charitable foundation funds, you know, a healthcare institute that does modeling. No, no. These politicians that were using the IHME model were well aware that it was a Bill Gates production a Bill Gates production. Cuomo admitted it multiple times. In fact, Cuomo wasn't the only one who admitted it. Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, the governor there, she also referred to the IHME model as prediction of how many deaths she thought were going to happen and the PPE resources that she said she needed in the state of Michigan. Same with Pennsylvania. Same with New Jersey. It wasn't just the states. Schachtel writes, Federal bureaucrats, Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Burks, both of whom have substantial ties to the Gates Network, use the IHME COVID-19 forecasting models, which Burks endorsed specifically as the best prediction modeling outfit to make policy recommendations to states. In her White House briefings, Burks, who simultaneously had a seat on the board of a Gates-funded institution, almost exclusively relied on IHME models to project outcomes. Can you believe that? They knew it was a Bill Gates production They knew they were basing their policy prescriptions on IHME. And that the result of that was we got locked down. Our churches got closed down. Our businesses got shuttered forever. Our rights were violated. We were masked and muzzled. Because Bill Gates, the puppet master, was controlling this from the very beginning. Now, you might notice, and Jordan points out, that, quote, Bill Gates has never discussed the catastrophic failures 
of his prized health metrics forecasting organization and how it's contributed to the suffering of millions of Americans. Instead, he has seamlessly washed his hands of COVID mania and has moved on to demanding that the Western world sacrifice itself in the name of the latest crisis that is climate change. How appalling is that? How appalling is that? You, ha you have to wonder. I know that I talked often at the beginning of uh, this pandemic, at the beginning of this crisis, about the Imperial College London model, Neil Ferguson's model and his predictions. But in the United States, and by the way, Neil Ferguson was extremely instrumental in sparking global panic, uh, certainly instrumental in uh, talking to Boris Johnson in the UK and probably sparking their lockdown. But Bill Gates... His influence in the United States, especially when it comes to COVID policy, is undeniable. Undeniable. And by the way, all of Bill Gates' public policy is equally as creepy. He's not just friend, he wasn't just friends with Jeffrey Epstein, which he was, and it's creepy. He wasn't just inappropriate with women, or continues to be, I have no idea. He was. His public policy, the things he advocates for with his foundation are equally as creepy. So I know that there's a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding this, but the truth of the matter is, Bill Gates does advocate for population control. He admits it himself, and he admits that he uses vaccines to achieve that population control. Again, I know that there's a lot of conspiracy theories around that. I don't ascribe to conspiracy theories. What I do ascribe to is the truth. What I do take literally are the words that are coming from these people's mouth. So a report from Bill Gates's foundation says as follows. Rapid population growth in some of Africa's poorest countries could put at risk future progress towards reducing global poverty and improving health. Gates himself said population growth in Africa is a challenge. Again, his own words corroborate the fact that Gates supports population control. Otherwise, he wouldn't say population growth is a challenge. So Gates was asked about, okay, well, how do you, how do you address population growth that you say is problematic? How do you address this? Even if your goal is to address poverty and you're addressing population growth because you think that causes poverty, then how do you address this? Well, at first he said birth control. He said, this is a Gates quote, the biggest things are the modern tools of contraception. If you have those things available, then people have more control over being able to space their children. Okay, so at first he advocated for, um, at first he advocated for birth control. Then, he says, actually, we pivoted to vaccines. This is a quote from Reuters. He pivoted from birth control to vaccines. He said, uh, this is according to Reuters, Gates has long been a proponent of slowing unsustainable population growth, we just covered that, by targeting the root causes of poverty unrest, and told, Gates told Forbes magazine in 2011 that when he first entered public health, it was to focus on contraception. We covered that too. When he later saw data suggesting that when mortality rates fall too, uh, fall, so too do birth rates, Gates shifted his focus from contraceptives to saving people already alive. This is a quote from Gates to Forbes. We moved pretty heavily into vaccines once we understood that. This man advocates for population control, uses vaccines to do that. He was the puppet master, one of the most influential people behind the COVID-19 lockdowns, the public policy, politicians' moves that restricted our freedoms and wrecked our economy, Bill Gates was more influential than Dr. Fauci. An interesting investigation by Just the News um, caught my eye, and I wanted to talk about it with you. So in the state of Georgia, as we know, a lot of uh, voter fraud, to what extent, we're not exactly sure, but some pretty significant election issues going on down there. According to a Just the News investigation, um, ballots in the state of Georgia 
that were rejected by the machine that was supposed to count them were later actually altered by election workers. Not just hand counted after the machine, but altered by election workers. So this is what Just the News reports. A Dominion voting machine had rejected the ballot and they give a specific number. It's 5150-232-18. That's the ballot we're talking about. A Dominion voting machine had rejected the ballot on election night because the voter had filled in boxes for both Trump and Joe Biden. It's an error known as an overvote. The machine determined that neither candidate should get a tally and the ballot was referred for human review. So the image of the ballot, which you can see on the screen, shows the voter messily scribbled a large blob in the box to select Trump as president, while also putting a thinner check mark next to Biden's name. Again, this makes the ballot invalid because you can't put marks in both boxes and expect to have your vote counted. That's simply not how it works. If you spoil a ballot, you're supposed to ask for a new one. So on November 4th, 24 hours after the ballot was first scanned, according to Just the News, and rejected by the machine, a panel of humans decided the vote should be awarded to Biden with a, mo with a notation mark removed for Donald Trump. Again, you saw the ballot. You saw that there was um, a significant mark in the box for Donald Trump and then a thin check mark in the box for Joe Biden. This is not an isolated incident, according to Just the News. Not at all. In fact, this, this whole thing, there were about 5,000 uh, ballots that were adjudicated by humans in the state of Georgia after the voting machine rejected them. 5,000. Now, of course, 5,000, even if all of them were for Joe Biden when people were attempting to vote for Donald Trump, 5,000 is not enough to overturn the election results because Joe Biden won the election down there by 13,000 votes. But it is enough to make us question what is happening in the state of Georgia? Because this is what Just the News, uh, John Solomon, actually, to be specific, at Just the News reports. He said, in Georgia, election regulations create two conflicting imperatives. One regulation, which is quoted on each absentee ballot, emphatically declares that a paper ballot should be deemed spoiled and uncountable if a voter makes any mistakes or unauthorized remarks. If you make a mistake or change your mind or change your mind on a selection, do not attempt to mark through the selection or attempt to erase. Write spoiled across the ballot and across the return envelope and get a new ballot language on each ballot reads. That's pretty clear, right? Well, another Georgia regulation, this is what John Solomon writes, gives election officials broad discretion to try to determine the intent of a confused voter and actually encourages them to find a way to make flawed ballots count. That to me is absolutely nuts. When you have individuals, and every individual, no matter whether they think that they're nonpartisan, every individual is political. When you have individuals that work for the election, that are election officials trying to get inside the mind of a voter and say, well, this is what the voter meant. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? I mean, talk about vulnerability for fraud, intentional fraud or otherwise. I mean, because you have preconceived biases, you're going to try to read into or infer what a voter meant? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And 5,000 ballots in the state of Georgia were adjudicated like this, where an election official tried to determine the intent of a voter who had made a mark that should have caused the ballot to be spoiled. That's a really, really big deal, and the state of Georgia should be held accountable for it. So let's pivot over to the state of California, my former home uh, for almost a decade. The gubernatorial recall election, I wish, wish, wish that I was able to vote in this. Um, but I left the state about 10 months too early to vote in this. The recall election for Gavin Newsom is happening on September 14th. And really, there's only one fact that is um, absolutely critical for everyone to know. This is the fact. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is a hypocritical, anti-science tyrant. 
I don't say that to call him names, although, I mean, it also applies. I say that because it's factual. Gavin Newsom is a hypocritical anti-science tyrant. Think of the French laundry. Think of the mask mandates. Think of his dictates to churches, disallowing people the right to worship the God that they choose in their house of worship. He's awful. Larry Elder, the best choice to replace Gavin Newsom, who's running not because he seeks power, not because he seems fa- seeks fame, not because he seeks money. He's running because he wants to save the state from the radical leftists. He's running on a platform to end mask mandates and end vaccine mandates, period. That's all you need to know. Your choice is easy, California. Get rid of Gavin Newsom. Also, there's a Democrat narrative that I think is very interesting because it's so obviously false. The left tells you that uh, uneducated Trump voters are the ones refusing the COVID vaccine. That's why they blame Republicans for COVID still going on. But the truth of the matter is, Black people, who are hardly Trump voters, right, are actually the largest racial demographic to be unvaccinated in our country. So that's that's the racial aspect of it and the political aspect of it. the education aspect of it, guess who are the most unvaccinated or vaccine hesitant, as the left calls it, education demographic. PhDs are. Not high school graduates, not high school dropouts, not college graduates, not master's graduates. PhDs are the most vaccine hesitant education demographic. So we're told that it's uneducated white Trump voters who are unvaccinated, but actually the highest percentage skin color-wise, racial demographic-wise, are Black people, and the highest percentage, education-wise, are PhDs. Again, the Democrats lie. They always lie. Well, I regret to inform you that the inevitable has happened. Facebook has demonetized my page again. This time, they claim the reason they have removed my ability to monetize content. They claim the reason is COVID misinformation. Well, Isn't it funny how whenever I talk about COVID, I specifically cite scientific studies. Oftentimes, I don't even give my opinion. I just let the study speak for itself. But it contradicts Fauci. It contradicts Biden. It contradicts the ridiculous anti-science tyrants who are currently running our nation from the public health official level all the way up to the president of the United States. And so Facebook demonetized me. So in order to be able to talk about the science, what's happening with COVID-19, I unfortunately will not be able to do that on Facebook at this time. So please, please join me on Locals, lizwheelershow.com slash Locals, because you're going to want to hear the latest on COVID-19. What the CDC is recommending now, um, it's pretty shocking and it's pretty misogynistic. If you want to see the rest of this segment, hear everything that we're going to talk about, head on over to Locals, the Liz Wheeler Show community at lizwheelershow.com slash Locals. See you there. On that note, the great and powerful Jay Hay says, it's time for me to stop talking for today. I'll be back tomorrow. But in the meantime, think for yourself, use critical thought, reject critical theory, question authority, follow the facts, and don't let government or corporate wokeism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. If you haven't already, even if you don't listen on this particular platform, please subscribe to my show on Apple Podcasts. It greatly increases traction for our show. Apple's also been great about not uh, censoring us or kicking us off their platform or demonetizing us or any of the nonsense we face with big tech based on what we say. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a glowing review, of course. Thanks for watching today. Thanks for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. 
Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Assistant Editor, Michael Wall. Sound Mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-Production Manager, Victoria Metzel. Director of Marketing, Emily Washler. Production and Talent Coordinator, Matt Toffler. And Senior Publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.